passionate about. As we open God's Word, it's amazing the correlation um, that we're going to find here between that and, and this text. But before we do anything, I really would like to pray. So let's pray. Jesus, I, um, I echo what Adam's prayer was, God, that you'd change us through your word. And I would pray, God, that whatever words are spoken here um, would be yours. And that you'd silence um, any ones that are not of you. Please, God, help us to see and to hear and to feel and to love, which has been our prayer all along. So Holy Spirit, do that work in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're going to see a picture on the screen of the approximate area, well, not approximate, where they believe that this event took place. Um, you might have noticed a Sermon on the Mount. It's more like a Sermon on the Plain. <laughs> um, or the Beatitudes. And we're going to look at this passage uh, in Luke. Um, just on the front end of it, uh, some believe that this is, is the same sermon we read about in Matthew 5-7. through 7. And There's a few others who think it's actually a different sermon. Um, kind of the way a pastor might give one sermon and speak somewhere else and give the same sermon, and there might be little differences in it. Um, I'm not going to go in that debate. Um, we do know Jesus gave it. We do know he gave it there. <laughs> and uh, we do know the content from Luke um, is right in front of us, and so we want to interact with that. And um, a couple things. First of all, um, we don't really know what Jesus looked like. You know, people tried to draw him. We don't know what he sounded like. But maybe in a sense we do know what he looks like and sounded like when we read this, when we read this text. Because it gives us a picture of our king and a picture of what it looks like to live in the king's kingdom. What's on his heart? What, what, what is Jesus passionate about? How does Jesus view life? And we, you and I get this great chance to see the character of our king and to be conformed into that character is our goal. The name of the Beatitudes are from the Latin Vulgate Bible, from blessed are, we get that word Beatitudes. It describes the blessedness of those who have certain qualities or experiences pe uh, peculiar to those belonging to the kingdom of heaven. In a sense, as we read this, and we're going to continually come back to it, Jesus calls you as a Christian to be different. If you're not different from the culture, you're not following Jesus because they are diametrically opposed as we read this. There's going to be a lot, there's going to be some serious differences for followers of Jesus as we're going to see here. It's a radical call to be different. In Matthew 5, chapters through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's account, Jesus says over and over, you have heard it said, but I tell you. <laughs> I mean, Jesus says, I got a little different perspective here than what you've heard said. And Jesus continually calls us to a higher level of living a kingdom lifestyle. And that's exactly what we're going to read about here. First, we see some radical counsel, verses 20 through 38. Follow along if you would. Luke 6, verse 20 through 38. And he lifted, his up, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. and Leap for joy. 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers, fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. I want to tell you this morning, I come this morning with an assumption. I want to lay it out there right away. My assumption is you want more of God's blessing in your life. That's my assumption. i got to believe deep within each of us, somewhere deep in our heart, there's a longing for more. We want to live under the blessing of God. We want our relationships blessed. We want our, our marriages, our, our homes, our businesses. We want them blessed by God. We want to enjoy the favor of God and know more about what God thinks. I I, I believe deep down we want that. And who knows more where this blessing of God is found than Jesus. And Jesus tells us here, blessed are. And according to Jesus, the greatest blessings, as we read this text, are not found where we would normally look. That these blessings are found in places we wouldn't necessarily be inclined to explore. But he tells us what a blessed life looks like. A blessed life is one that lives according to the king and his kingdom. In verse 20 through 23, he starts it out. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed is this idea, happy, satisfied. Fulfilled. If you were to go to the person on the street, person you work next to, and say, hey, would you like to be satisfied in your life? Would you like to be fulfilled? Would you like to be happy? Unsaved people would say, I really would like that. That would be really great. And you would have every right to say, okay, well, Jesus says, if that's the type of life you want, it's found in his kingdom. And he says, blessed are the poor. It means poor in spirit. It means that you recognize you're spiritually bankrupt before god you recognize your poverty it's an attitude towards yourself where you know and affirm that you've not lived the life which god has called you to and without him you're unable to change that dilemma people who are poor in spirit don't flaunt gifts they don't blame other people for their for their failings 
This is a challenge as it goes against the grain of our self-promoting culture. Jesus says, blessed are you who understand you're spiritually bankrupt and you've got nothing to offer. You're blessed. Quite different than our culture, for sure. Blessed are the hungry, he says. Blessed are those, those of you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. This is a desire that rises out of the heart that doesn't hunger for food, but hungers, for thir- hungers and thirsts for righteousness. His righteousness. Now, God gives us a righteousness at salvation. And, and we don't ask for what we already have. This is something different. This is those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that God calls us to live out. In other words, we're living out the reality of our salvation. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness to seek to live it out. And those who hunger and thirst for that, Jesus says, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be filled. Now, when your body is hungry, it's telling you something, right? It's telling you of a need. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it tells us of a need. It tells us of a need that we have to have the power of God help us to live out a righteous life and that we are to seek that righteous life. And so God says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll be satisfied. It's not done. He says, blessed are you who, you who weep now. This isn't talking about natural mourning like we would think in terms of if we were sad. It's talking about spiritual mourning. And boy, it seems like there's not a lot of spiritual mourning in the church anymore. Where we mourn over our sin. We grieve over our sin. And what it costs to pay for that sin, no less than the death of Jesus Christ. He says, blessed are those who weep now, who spiritually mourn, who recognize you're spiritually bankrupt, you lack the righteousness of God, you'll be blessed if you recognize that. Laughing, because he says, who those who spiritually mourn, you'll be laughing, and it's not something fickle, it's this idea of a deep joy and freedom. For those who spiritually mourn over their sin, recognize there's nothing they can do about it, come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation, theirs is joy and freedom. They'll one day laugh, not only in this earth, but for all of eternity, there'll be that sense of joy and that freedom. It's a blessing of God when we spiritually mourn. When we're persecuted, we talk about the persecuted church last week. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you. Boy, you know, when I, when I read that, I thought of, I thought of our teenagers. The pressure of peer groups to kind of align with the majority. And, but Christian young person, you could be excluded because of your faith. And guess what Jesus says? Blessed are you. You're blessed because of that. And for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face persecution of their faith and varying degrees as Scott shared last week, They revile you. You spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice, it's our association with Jesus Christ that this persecution comes. Jesus wants you to know that he knows the persecution you'd be facing. And he wants you to know you're blessed. Because rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven. And we don't even know 
the degree and to the magnitude of that reward. But Jesus says, you're blessed. And so when our Lord sits down with his disciples to tell them about life under the blessing of God, doesn't begin with a class on doctrine. Instead, he describes a person who's poor in spirit, who mourns over their sin, who humbly submits to God's will and longs and grows in righteousness. It's this life where the blessing of God is found. But Jesus then says, if maybe you're not clear, there's curses here. Now, this woe is, is, is different. Later, Jesus calls, says woe to uh, Chorazan and another uh, um, city because of their evil and wicked deeds. This has this more idea of pity on. And he says, woe to you who are rich. You're like, well, is it bad to have money? It's not talking about that. It's those who are content with their money, who are fully satisfied with their riches. They're receiving and they're contented with their, co- their comfort in this life. And let's be honest, if we look at America, there's an idol that many worship. It's called comfort and convenience. And for those who worship at that idol, Jesus has a warning for you. You've received your consolation. This is as good as it's going to get for you. With all the, with all the worry and that you have about all the... Uh, resources and money and stuff like that, that's the best it's going to be for you. And there's a woe here. There's a warning. Don't set your heart on that. And he goes, woe to you who are full now. The full is the opposite of hungry. You're fully satisfied with the things of this world. Maybe you're fully satisfied that you've been good enough. They imagine they have everything they need and lack nothing. The curse is there's a reality of emptiness which will be manifested and realized. He says, whoa, a pity on those who live that way. This smug contentment, he says, woe to you who laugh now. This is much different laughter than those who are blessed. This isn't joy and freedom. They're going to mourn and weep. This smug contentment with their religious achievements or their worldly pursuits. That's what Jesus is talking about. The reality of eternity, eternity they will mourn and weep. Not only, I believe, ultimately here on earth, but in hell. For all of eternity where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we're told. How's that for a trade-off? Woe, Jesus warning right away. Don't live for the things of this world. They're empty, they're futile. And they have nothing to do with eternity. And, and you're going to lose big time. So he warns, he says, woe. But he's not done, because Jesus says, life in his kingdom Those who are blessed, their lives look different. And, matter of fact, it's marked by a love of a different kind, verse 27 through 36. But I say to you, notice that these two key words, it's what we prayed for, who hear. Right? We've been praying that we could hear. And Jesus says to those who hear, the implication is there's some who don't, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This is clearly a love of a different kind. The mark of a Christian right off the bat clearly is love. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But Jesus says, not just love one another in the community of faith, but love your enemies. Takes it a step further. Christ's love operating in our life is on display And Jesus says, here's what it looks like. And he gives some examples in verse 27 through 29. 
He says, love those who hate and curse you. Do good to them. The idea of do good is that which would benefit them. That's pretty over the top. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's not easy to do. That goes cross-culture, right? He says, how about those who strike you? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on a cheek, offer the other also. This idea of abuse here in verse 28 is this idea more of a verbal abuse. They curse you, it's a, it's a verbal abuse type thing. And uh, he's, Jesus is laying it right out here. Here's some examples. If you want to know what it looks like to love your enemies, here, he says. Those who hate and curse you, do good to them. Those who strike you, refuse to react. Now, in the culture then, he's not talking about someone, it's not talking about defending yourself. Someone comes up threatening your life. This isn't about that. In this culture back then, when someone struck you, often it was something like a, a way of dishonoring you. Uh, we maybe say bully, that type of thing. Um, they're dishonoring you. They're, they're considering you and calling you a fool. It's that type that the culture would understand. And Jesus says, hey, when someone comes and dishonoring you, they're calling you a fool, and they manifest them striking you, turn the other cheek. It's, it's, it's one way you live in the kingdom. Kingdom living looks really different. Those who rob you, takes your cloak, do not hold back your shirt. Back then, they'd have a cloak, like a tunic, and so it'd be similar to them, somebody coming up and saying, hey, I'm going to steal your coat. And they mean you harmed by stealing your cloak. And you say, hey, you want my shirt? You have turned their harm into an opportunity to do good. You flip the tables on them. Can you imagine being a robber going, oh, nuts. wasn't expecting that. And uh, now I'm beholding to them. Um, And so Jesus, you can see radically different counsel. And it's a love of a different kind without a doubt. As I read this, I thought, what if believers in this volatile culture in which we lived, lived like this? I get sickened to hear the political language. And what even sickens me worse is when it's justified. I can't stand that. Or a Christian politician or a Christian celebrity speaks out harshly and slanderous and it's excused because well, it's okay because they're standing for what's right. Well, it's good to stand for what's right. It's not okay to speak that way. That's not life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom looks different. And Jesus says what, it's, what it looks like. He then gives some principles. What does that love look like? It's not just abstaining from bad behavior, but there's some specific good things he says we can do. Look, he says, as we read on, verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's this idea of giving without expectation. I mean, there was great poverty back in this culture. And many could only survive if they were helped by other people. But there was also an unwritten rule that when you gave a gift, and, and it's still kind of true, isn't it? When you gave a gift you're, or received a gift, you're like, well, I better give one. Because I've got to make it somehow even, right? We kind of still have that idea. If you, maybe you get an early Christmas gift or card, you're like, oh, man, I feel like a knucklehead if I don't reciprocate. Um, and so there's that pressure in that culture, too. But Jesus says, no, this is a little different. This is just, this is just serving them. Don't expect anything back. Just, just give without expectation. 
And Jesus, by the way, gives no social distinctions here, which is important. It's not just Jew to Jew, but it's everybody should live that way. It's life in the kingdom. Then he says, do unto others as you'd want them to do. What does that look like? You're driving around the road, tire explodes, flat tire, you got to change it. Cold out, it's like, geez, it'd be nice if I had someone here to help me, right? You, you, well, if that's how you would feel, then maybe if you see somebody in that scenario, you should pull over and help them because that's what you would like. It's just real simple and practical Jesus gives. It's life in his kingdom. That's how we live. We live selflessly. And then he contrasts it with the unsaved world. That's when he sees sinners here, he's talking about those who are outside the kingdom. He says, love those, loving those who love you. And that, that's what the unsaved world does. I mean, they just reciprocate love. They don't go beyond that expression of it. It's a self-serving attitude because it allows others' goodness to limit one's own. In other words, I'll only do good as you do to me. You see the, the problem with that. And then lend to those who pay back. You know, only give to people who are going to pay you back. Or only give to those whose bank account is enough that you know that they got enough coming in to give back to you. Those with excess usually only loan to those deemed worthy to receive and with the means to pay back. And here Jesus tells his disciples and those who are followers of him to lend without expecting anything in return. It's a call to be different. It's kingdom living is what it is. And he doesn't just command his followers to love enemies. He commands us to love enemies his way. Not our way, his way. And he says it in verse 35 through 38, turn gracious gifts, or turning loans into gracious gifts. It flips the culture's philosophy totally upside down. Instead of saying, I'm going to give you a loan, and I want interest, it says I'm giving you a loan, but it's not really a loan, it's, it's a gift. I mean, how different is that? If you don't think so, go to a bank. Say, hey, could you give me a gift? I want $3,000. Just uh, forget the interest, give me the gift, I'm out of here. They're like, seriously? Uh, they, won't, they won't think too highly of that. they got a different philosophy the bank operates on. But Jesus' kingdom is just different, it's very different. And so that challenges us. The command to love enemies is God's, God's way is to be merciful. If you're following on Jesus' term means anything, it means that we're able to forgive our enemies. As Ephesians says, we're able to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. And the basic building block of forgiveness is God's wonderful, inexhaustible mercy that he showered on us. It enables us to show that to other people. And when we're merciful, we won't judge. We won't condemn. We won't hold on to things other people do. We won't set ourselves up as a decider of who can be saved and who can't be saved. We won't be harsh. We won't be critical or compassionless. Because that's not life in the kingdom. That's not what Christ's followers are to live like. And Jesus doesn't say how or when the good deeds um, that will pour into our overflow into our lapses. He just says that they will. He just says they will. Again, blessed is the one who lives in the kingdom the way the king would want us to live. And then he gives us a couple pictures. And before I move on to them, I, I had a question I wrote down. I think it's important. What if 
the church loved our community that way? What if we lived that way? I mean, what if we didn't return evil for evil? What if our language was different? We spoke blessing instead of curses. We lent maybe to someone we came in without expecting a return, and we stopped and helped people regularly. I wonder what our community would think of that. Well, look at these revealing parables and pictures, I should say. Verse 39 to 49. He also told them a parable. A parable is like a husk of corn. That's the parable which reveals the kernels inside it. So here's the husk, and there's kernels inside. That's what we want to see. We see the kernels in the parable. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Disciples not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, and no, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes gathered or picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure up of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it's been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So we got these revealing pictures, and as we read this, we recognize if we really want to help people grow in grace, we must, too, be growing in grace or we become a blind person leading another blind person. And certainly in the context of some of the hearers who are the re- religious group, the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes of the Pharisees, this is aimed at them because they were the blind leading the blind, for sure. But I think this also speaks to us the way we live life, for those who aren't living according to the kingdom, we're really living blindly to the ways of God, and we can lead others that way. Can the blind lead the blind? It's a legitimate question. Again, specifically the Pharisees and scribes who are blind to who Jesus is, what he was doing, and what their own faults were. The teacher's limitations and errors will inevitably be mirrored in their students. But if we follow Jesus, the promises will become more like him. First John 2 tells us that. That we'll increasingly become more like him as we follow him. And then Jesus gets into this humor. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. We see it here. Imagine how ridiculous this would look. When he says log, it's this idea of a plank. Many commentators say it's like the beam in a house. So you got this beam hanging out of your eye. Let's just say it's six, eight feet. Okay? Hanging out of your eye. You're walking around. You're smoking people in the head. You're knocking stuff off the shelves. You're just causing all kinds of problems. 
and then you see someone coming and, and probably hit them in the head first, you say, got a little something in your eye. We, we go, what? Maybe. Why don't you take that big beam out of your eye first, buddy, before you look at the little dinky speck in my eye. And so Jesus uses this picture, and it's a good picture. And so as we look at this, Jesus is saying, man, look, look inside yourself first. Because life in my kingdom is about righteousness and pursuing righteousness. And so Jesus tells the hypocritical Pharisees for sure what they were like. These clear-eyed teachers of morality, at least what they should have been to Israel, these well-respected people, Jesus says, you got some big logs in your eye, you're not going to be able to help anybody. And so Jesus says, first humbly deal with your own sin. And all their religiosity produced only bad fruit, as verse 43 through 45 tells us. And there's only one reason for bad fruit, a bad tree. A heart overflowing with devotion to Jesus produces streams of love, as he talked about, and good acts. But a polluted heart results in selfishness, grudges, jealousy, and anger. Then he gives an analogy. And it's interesting, it strikes me, the sermon here ends the same way it began, with a contrast between two different types of persons. And at the end of this message, he really lets his hearers know that they have a choice. Notice what he says, first of all, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Let's stop there for a second. Lord, the authoritative one, the one who calls the shots, the one you bow to, isn't it a contradiction to say no, Lord? How does that work? If you say no, Lord, you're making yourself Lord. And Jesus says, that's, that's not possible. How can you say Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You're saying no, Lord, and I'm Lord. So we got a real problem. How can you do that? Implication, you can't call me Lord and not do what I say. If I'm the king, then you'll live like the king wants in his kingdom. It's about kingdom living. The gospel and following Jesus is uncompromisingly exclusive. We don't come to Jesus Christ by faith and then say, okay, now I'm going to go do what I want. That person's clearly not regenerated. Following Jesus Christ is living on his terms. It's when we first call him Lord. Everything changes. Our whole orientation in life changes. Because now he's Lord. He has control. And the secret to standing firm is not what the quality of the paint, not what the decorations are, not even what our house looks like, it's what it's built on. And Jesus would call us all to look and say, what is your life built on? Is it built on Jesus? And notice Jesus brings into it what he said. Is your life built on Jesus and his word? If it is, there's good news for you. You're going to be able to stand firm. If not, there's bad news for you. You can be expecting a collapse of some kind, and clearly an eternal one outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Wise people build upon Christ. Are you building your life on kingdom values? Or are you building on a world philosophies? It would appear to me that kingdom living is a choice to pursue, but the real question this morning to you and I, what choice are we going to make in that? 
as I thought about a concrete application, there's a lot in here, by the way. I mean, you, you look at that, you could be thinking of a neighbor already or somebody you want to go help. And, and, uh, but there's one thing I want to ask you to do. Double dog dare you. This week, sit down over Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But don't just read it. Pray over it. And say, God, evaluate my heart through these words. Before you even open and read it, ask God, speak to this heart. Change me by what I'm about to read. Because again, you're going to hear over and over, you have heard it said, but I tell you, and you and I are all going to be faced as we read this week, whether we're going to align our life with what Jesus said or all the other stuff we're hearing. It's a choice we have. Okay, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. Who's in? I want to know who's in. Come on, raise your flag if you're in. Okay. It's going to be a good week, right? It'll be a good week. So let's pray and at the beginning of our prayer, and that we'll hear Jesus throughout the week. Lord God, thank you for your word. It cuts through all the rhetoric. It cuts through all our excuses. It cuts through all the philosophies and all the other voices we hear. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. Change us. And Lord, I specifically pray for each heart here as they sit before you and your spirit this week and read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that God you would do a deep and changing work in our life. That we would align our life with your kingdom. We'd become increasingly more like you for your glory and for your purposes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.